Uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Royal College of Surgeons. My name's Sam, I work here in the Museums and Archives. Uh, it's a privilege to work here, but it's a particular privilege to introduce today's speaker, Professor Harold Ellis. He needs no introduction, so I will give none, but suffice to say that it's a great personal delight to be introducing uh, such a supernova in the anatomical and surgical firmament, and you came here to listen to him, not me, so I'll hand straight over. Professor Ellis. Ladies and gentlemen, after that wonderful introduction, I can hardly wait to hear myself speaking. <laughs> so my title, as you can see, is uh, Sir James Paget, surgeon, teacher, and remarkable clinical observer. Uh, uh, Paget was, uh, 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 came from uh, Great Yarmouth, and there must be something very strange about the uh, air or the water or something about that part of uh, East Anglia because it produced two of our great uh, British surgeons of the 19th century. Um, Sir Ashley Cooper of Guy's Hospital, the greatest surgeon that Guy's produced, and I work at Guy's now, uh, was born uh, outside uh, Norwich uh, where his father was uh, a, a vicar at a little village there. And uh, Sir James Paget, the subject of our talk, uh, was born as, uh, in Great Yarmouth. And they were very close to each other. And as I hope I'll remember to remember uh, to tell you, that uh, they, they, their lives intersected on one occasion. Well, the reason why we're here today is that uh, it's the 200th anniversary of the birth of Sir James Paget. He was born in fact, on the 11th of uh, January in 1814. And uh, to celebrate that occasion, we had an absolutely splendid meeting in the, ho in the hospital at Great Yarmouth, appropriately named the James Paget Hospital, uh, which was organized, brilliantly organized, by the uh, senior surgeon there, uh, Mr. Su Mr. Hugh Sersanker. And I'm glad to say he's in the audience here today uh, it was absolutely wonderful uh, um, meeting, uh, which I had the great honor of being one of the speakers. And uh, the, the current uh, baronet, uh, Sir Julian Paget, was there. Of course, as hereditary titles now disappear, the title will now disappear after Sir James remits. Um, as there was a wonderful meeting, and, and better still, Hugh produced an absolutely beautiful book. Uh, which I'm glad to possess, uh, about Paget, which is, which is well worth reading. Uh, so here we are, the early uh, 19th century in Great Yarmouth, and Paget's father uh, was a wealthy uh, businessman, trader. He uh, ran the local brewery, but he earned most of his money supplying the ships of the Royal Navy uh, anchored in Great Yarmouth Harbour. Uh, he, he was obviously a popular chap because he was the mayor of Great Yarmouth. Uh, Paget's mother uh, was, was obviously a, a, a talented woman. She was a great collector and she was a very good amateur artist. And as, you can, as you'll hear, Paget himself was a great collector and, and a good artist too. He inherited, I'm sure, uh, those in his mother's genes. Uh, 
there were 17 children. 17 children in those days before the pill. And uh, only nine of them, seven boys and two girls, uh, survived into adult life. Uh, one of uh, James's brothers, I must mention, George, uh, an old elder brother, considerably older, uh, he was a distinguished chap because uh, he went to Cambridge, then went to St. Bartholomew's Hospital as a medical student, uh, became a distinguished physician, and indeed ended up as, um, as the Regis Professor of Medicine in Cambridge, almost as good as being the Regis Professor of Oxford, where I trained. Uh, the, then things, things changed because uh, when Paget was 10, when James was 10, his father's business collapsed. I don't quite know why, but instead of being a prosperous man, he really became almost penniless. Things were really very serious. So poor James, unlike his other brothers who all went to Charterhouse Public School, he just had to go to the local school and uh, when he was 16, um, he was apprenticed to the local apothecary. And he became an apothecary, as an apprentice apothecary. Interesting, because he learned lots of uh, important things. He learned how to bleed patients. He learned how to, how to blister patients. He learned how to bandage up wounds. He learned how to set fractures and splint them. He could open an abscess. He could make up ointments. He could make up medicines. He could roll pills. So he learned a lot of useful things. He learned the skeleton, bones of the skeleton, uh, from, a, from, a, from a collection of, from a skeleton out of his book. Uh, he dissected the occasional limb that the surgeons amputated and let him have uh, to experiment with. Uh, he, he taught himself French, something I wish I could be, had done. Uh, let's have a look at Paget in those young days. Uh, as well as that, interesting enough, in his spare time, he roamed uh, the fields of surrounding Great Yarmouth, and together with his, uh, one of his brothers, here was his first publication. Uh, you can see the title there. And it was a remarkable book for uh, a, a young lad, not yet 20. And you can see a vast compendium of insects, plants, non-flowering plants, flowering plants. Uh, I should think there was nothing in the fields around Yarmouth uh, that Paget hadn't seen and described. Remarkable. Well then, having uh, trained as an apothecary, at the age of 20, uh, Paget went to uh, St. Bartholomew's Hospital Medical School. And here's a picture of Bards as it would have been in those days, hasn't changed much. <laughs> uh, Paget soon realised that the teaching on the wards at uh, Bart's wasn't very good. The surgeons were, at that time, weren't a very uh, uh, enterprising lot, and Paget realised it was a bit of a waste of time going on the ward rounds. So he dedicated his time during the day to hour after hour after hour, dissecting in the dissecting room, learning his anatomy. At the same time, working in the pathology department, carrying out post-mortems, hour after hour after hour. His evenings, he absolutely dedicated to work, 
reading the textbooks. Uh, having taught himself French, he now taught himself German. Why did he do that? Because he realized that in the early 19th century, some very interesting physiology and the new science of biochemistry was emerging from Germany. And he was able to read the papers where these fascinating things were being published. And he made himself very useful to his chiefs at Bart's by being able to tell them, keeping them up to date with uh, what was happening over in the continent. So he really learned uh, this ability to work long, long, long hours, day and night, which remained with him throughout his life. Uh, while he was at Bath, uh, while he was a medical student, he made his first discovery. Uh, it was well known in the, in the post-mortem room that cadavers would have, often they would find little calcified nodules in their muscle. They called them bony spicules. Nobody knew what they were. And Paget, being Paget, decided to find out what these things were. So he was going to put them under the microscope. Unfortunately, there was no microscope in the whole of St. Bartholomew's Medical School. I've spoken to the president of this college, Professor Norman Williams, who's just come in, and he assured me just the other day that Bart's now has got a microscope. <laughs> Thank you very much, Norman, for that information, without which I couldn't have carried on with this lecture. Uh, so uh, Paget, who was now about 21, enterprising chap, went round to the Natural History Museum. There was no microscope there. But the director directed him to the, the Department of Botany, where there was a microscope. So Paget took these little spicules, uh, put them under the microscope, uh, and discovered that they were used with a little tiny worm. Uh, the picture on your right here comes from the collection at uh, the Gordon Museum at Guy's, where I now work. But that must have been the sort of microscope slide uh, that Paget would have uh, would have prepared. Uh, above, you will see a modern picture of what Paget would have seen under the microscope he borrowed from the botany department, the little worm Trigina spiralis. And down below is much more modern there's an electron microscope picture of this. And uh, Paget presented this at the Abernathian Society, which was the student society at, uh, at Bard. So, so he, here he is, this young medical student, making an original discovery. Very unusual. Of course, it's happened. Uh, Best, who was a medical student in Toronto, uh, worked with, uh, with uh, uh, Banting, during the summer vacation at, at the, the medical school. And between them, they extracted insulin from the dog's pancreas. Tremendous piece of work for which they both got the Nobel Prize. Um, uh, San Blom in, uh, in, in Uppsala, in Sweden, discovered the parathyroid glands as a medical student, uh, both in animals and in human dissection put them under the microscope, describe their microscopic appearance. One is a medical student. And of course, I suppose everybody knows about Langerhans, who described the little islands of Langerhans in the pancreas, uh, where we, which we now know where insulin is produced. So it does happen. It does happen. But it's rare. I'm a very diffident chap, and I don't like, perhaps I shouldn't mention this, but in fact, not when I was a medical student, but when I was a young National Service medical officer, 
uh, I made an original description. Uh, I wrote it up in the British Medical Journal. It was the first case ever to be reported of uh, an emergency circumcision, which I carried out on a young soldier whose prepuce was jammed into the zip fastener of his trousers. He told me it happened while he was saying goodnight to his girlfriend when her husband came in. <laughs> I wrote up in the British Medical Journal. It had widespread repercussions, this original observation. Nobody's described it before, nobody, as far as I know, nobody's described it since. And about two or three months later, I got some papers sent to me from the War Office. They said, you'll be interested in this. And it said, uh, came from Canada, it said, as a result of the paper published in the British Medical Journal by Captain H. Ellis, R.E.M.C., zip fasteners are to be withdrawn <laughs> forthwith from the Canadian Navy and replaced with buttons. God knows how many Canadian sa sa uh, sailors' prepuces I've saved as a result of that. I'm going to get on with Paget. Let's, let's leave that topic for a moment. Uh, two years later, in 1822, uh, 1824, by which time Paget was 22, Paget passed his MRCS, member of the Royal College of Surgeons. Interestingly enough, I said their lives were cross. One of his examiners, uh, was the much older Sir Astley Cooper. And Astley found out that Paget was a fellow East Anglian and took the boy out for breakfast, which is rather nice. So here's Paget. You would think this brilliant chap who made an original discovery, who got, became top in most of the exams, who cleared off pretty well every prize offered in the medical school, would automatically on the house as a house surgeon. It wasn't so, he didn't get it. The fact is, the house surgeon jobs at Bart's in those days went to the apprentices of the surgeons on the staff. To become an apprentice, your father had to pay a considerable fee. And as I told you, poor Paget's father now was bankrupt. He couldn't afford his young lad to be an apprentice. So therefore, he, he, he failed to get on the house. So here he was at the age of 22, penniless, uh, without a job, and he did the only foolhardy thing I think he ever did in his life. He got engaged to a very nice girl called Lydia North, whose father was a uh, clergyman in, uh, in, in Great Yarmouth. And he had to wait seven, oh, I should say, they had to wait seven long years before Paget was earning enough money for the, for the young couple to get married. So what did he do? He became the assistant editor of a rather dreary medical uh, uh, publication uh, called, the, called the Medical, I've forgotten his name, Medical Bulletin, something like that. Very tedious, I've looked at it, very, very dull. And for this he wrote uh, various articles, he did reviews of what was going on in the world, he added Dutch to his knowledge of French and German, so he could, he could review articles coming from abroad. It was tedious, tedious, time-wasting time work. As well as that, he lectured in physiology at Barts, he did the post-mortems at Barts, he became curator of the Pathology Museum at Barts, he indexed every single 
specimen in the Museum of Arts, and I've been there, it's a vast museum. Every single one was completely described and so on and so forth. Uh, he did everything he possibly could to earn a few, a few shillings. He did a tiny amount of clinical practice. Uh, it was said he never earned more than eight or nine guineas a year seeing patients. So it was all very tedious. After five years, uh, the, um, the committee at Bart's decided that the time had come to improve things, and they built a residential quarters for the Bart students. And Paget was appointed uh, the resident of this, of this building. He, he was there to look after the students. Moved in, there was married quarters there, and so, at last, he and Lydia uh, could be, get married. Paget, being Paget, kept the most detailed notes on the students passing through the students' residence. Mm? And Hugh very kindly produced slides showing the wonderful notes he wrote on these people. Everyone, what he thought of these people. Years later, he followed up 1,000 medical students at Bart to see what happened to them. The best were consultants. The very worst was hung for murder. <laughs> In all these years of teaching students, I've had some criminals among them, but none of them actually, as far as I know, <laughs> murdered any. Well, but there was one who, no, I won't mention that. Uh, and then, uh, in 1847, uh, he got on the staff at Bart's as an assistant surgeon at the age of 33. And any doctor in the audience would have, for goodness sake, how can you make a chap a consult uh, 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 on the surgical staff when the boy has hardly done any surgery? Well, the fact is, let's put this in context, 1837, was just a few months after ether anesthesia had arrived. Mm? October 1846, uh, uh, the first operation was done under ether in this country at University College Hospital when Liston amputated a, a leg above knee under ether. In eight, the next year, 1847, chloroform appeared. So at last there was anesthetics. But remember that when Paget was put on the staff, there was very little actual operating done by most surgeons, and most surgeons, Paget included, would have done simple things like setting fractures and reducing dislocations and putting trocars into a hydrocele in the testis and perhaps taking out tonsils and removing simple little cutaneous lumps and bumps and lancing piles and so on. Perhaps stretching up a stricture in the urethra. And major surgery, capital surgery, as it was called in those days, was only carried out by a few pioneer surgeons, particularly, remember, we're talking about no anesthetics. So I mentioned Astley Cooper at Guy's. Astley Cooper was the first to tie the carotid artery, first to tie the iliac vessels for aneurysm, first to tie the aorta. The patient died, unfortunately, but it was well, well, well thought out operation. Astley Cooper did the, can you imagine, the first disarticulation of the hip, removing the whole of the lower limb through the hip joint, successfully without an anaesthetic. So there were some remarkable surgeons doing 
operations which today we would classify as major operations. Liston, I've already mentioned Liston at, at a university college. He was another chap who would do major surgery. Syme in Edinburgh, Syme's amputation of the ankle, who was Lister's father-in-law. He did major surgery. But the great majority of surgeons, as I said, were doing what today would be regarded as minor work. So anyhow, be that as it may, here's young Paget now on the staff. And very rapidly now, he showed his genius. The first thing was he was a very good teacher. Uh, he was a very good lecturer. Uh, he wrote beautiful English. Uh, and from, from the notes that have come down to us, it's obvious that his lectures were uh, extremely good. So he made his name at Bart's as, at last, a surgeon who, who could teach the students. And they flocked to his lectures. Uh, the other thing is, with his enormous knowledge of pathology, by this time, he'd also helped catalogue the Hunterian Museum in there, doing the recataloguing of that, having already catalogued the whole museum at Bart's. He had a vast knowledge of pathology, and so he became an extremely good second opinion in difficult cases. And later on, we'll mention some of the remarkable observations that he made. Within no time, he built up an enormous practice, uh, public as well as private. Uh, it wasn't long before he was looking after Queen Victoria herself. In fact, he looked after Queen Victoria as one of the surgeons for 47 years, eventually becoming the sergeant surgeon. Uh, he looked after the Prince of Wales, Prince Edward, for about 35 years, together with other members of the royal family, and members of the royal families overseas. He had an enormous consulting practice. He traveled thousands of miles all around the UK seeing patients. In the days, you see, when the fee was a guinea a mile. If you were called away from the hospital, it was a guinea a mile. It'd be worth doing it today. <laughs> so now we've got this man well established uh, as, a, uh, as a, a, a widely regarded uh, clinician, widely regarded uh, opinion. Uh, as well as that, as I say, he didn't neglect his writing, he didn't neglect his research, he didn't neglect his student teaching. And he had this ethos of working right through the day and then writing late into the night, week after week, month after month, month after month. Remarkable chap. Uh, the, uh, the, his clinical uh, expertise came to the end uh, in... Uh, 1871. 1871, uh, he retired from the staff at Barts as a surgeon. And there were several, by this time, uh, he'd uh, really achieved uh, great distinction. He was a fellow of the Royal Society and so on. Uh, but uh, one thing, uh, he, he uh, in that year, he was made a baronet as the Queen's Sergeant Surgeon. Of course, having once he retired from the staff, he had to give up that, that, uh, that post. Uh, but the thing that really decided him was that in doing a post-mortem, uh, he pricked himself and nearly died. He was very ill for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks with very severe uh, septicemia. Now, of course, people today don't realise that being a surgeon, being a student, medical student, 
in those pre-antiseptic days was dangerous. Slightest little cut, and you might get overwhelming lethal infection. And, that, and, and Paget nearly died. And when he recovered after being ill for many, many weeks, uh, he decided uh, that uh, 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 surgical practice was no longer uh, for him. It's very interesting. Um, when I was 10 years old in 1936, uh, I read, precocious little so-and-so, I wanted to be a doctor. And I read in the newspaper that a surgeon at uh, the London Hospital and also at the Chest Hospital, London Chest Hospital, in his very early 30s, who was obviously going to have a most distinguished career in this new specialty of chest surgery, pricked himself dressing a septic case. He had to have his finger amputated. Then he had his arm amputated. Then he died. So in living memory, this thing was going on. 1936, what a tragedy, because just a few weeks after poor old Nelson died, Leonard Colebrook at the, uh, at the Women's Lying In Hospital, Queen Charlotte's, uh, used this new drug, MNB693, the first of the sulfonamides, to treat women with the same organism, streptococcal childbed fever, with absolutely dramatic results. If only MNB had been available three or four months earlier, I should think Nelson would have survived. Sad story. So here we are at 1871, and remember now, as he retired, antiseptic surgery was four years old. Listed at his first antiseptic operation in Edinburgh in 1865, 1867, he published his results in The Lancet. Do you see? 1867. Four years later, end of Paget's career as a surgeon. So Paget never practiced, in inverted commas, modern antiseptic surgery with all his advantages. Very interesting. Uh, let me now, uh, well, just to finish off the story, Paget uh, carried on with his teaching, with his lecturing, uh, with a lot of administrative work, really right up uh, to his death. He died uh, just before the century, December the 30th, 1899. His wife had died uh, four or five years beforehand. Um, and uh, there was a service in Westminster Abbey. And uh, he was buried in, in, Finchley, in Finchley Cemetery next to his wife. So now let's get down to, let me just show you these pictures. Uh, as I say, Paget served on the council of this Royal College. He, he became president. Uh, this is a wonderful painting, not when Paget was on, uh, was, was president, but when he was on council. And when he was president, uh, he had this splendid bus made of him. And it's the second most commonly viewed 
statue in, in this great college of ours. As you come in, you can't miss Hunter. Everybody comes in to see Hunter. You know, if they're delivering the newspapers. You can't miss him as you go to the entrance. But this is the second most popular uh, 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 piece of statuary. Uh, because, of course, you've all seen it. It's between the entrance of the ladies' toilets on the left and the gentlemen's toilets on the right. So all of us, you know, as you go there, just... <laughs> Next time you go there, remember. Yeah. So, of course, his name is particularly well-known uh, with this paper published 1877 on a form of chronic inflammation of bone, osteitis deformans, Paget's disease of bone. Interestingly enough, of course, this is, it wasn't a new disease that had suddenly broken out. If you go into the Hunterian Museum and you go upstairs, there's a great collection of skulls. And I've looked very carefully at this great collection of skulls, and there are three skulls there which are undoubtedly Paget's disease. They didn't, know, they didn't call it Paget's disease, they didn't call it osteitis deformans, which is the name Paget's disease. They just, well, there's some chronic, peculiar chronic thickening of bone. So, of course, it's been, goodness knows how, be an interesting piece of research to see how early Paget's disease has been seen in, in skeletons. Um, and this was, a, the, the report was a, a man, age 68, and he watched him over 22 years of his life with gradual disease of various bones, with his head getting larger. Finally, he developed one of the well-known complications of Paget's disease, rare, but it's well recognized, that the bone may actually become malignant. And he developed a malignant tumor of his left arm. In his paper, he refers to four other patients that he'd, he'd seen in his practice, and three other case reports, the first of which was by Samuel Wilkes. But you see, uh, uh, just a few years previously, but you see, obviously, people had observed this condition but hadn't done anything about describing it or working it up uh, beforehand. Uh, this is the, uh, a picture of, uh, uh, in, in Paget's paper, showing the kyphosis, the curvature of the spine, the enlargement of the skull and so on, the bending of the bones. And interestingly enough, uh, in our archives at uh, the, Gordon, uh, the Gordon Museum at Guy's, uh, the curator discovered this, which is, it doesn't say that it's, uh, that it's Paget's patient, but it obviously is. And also, interestingly enough, he also dug up this picture of, uh, an old gen of a young gentleman with Paget's disease before his paper, 1864, and this must be uh, the patient described by Sir Samuel Wilkes at Guy's Hospital uh, a few years before Paget. Well, it's still a mysterious condition. This is a modern bone scan showing great bone activity in the affected bones. We know that there's a giant cell called osteoclast that proliferate in this condition, but it's still, it's still a mystery today. I always tell the students not to worry. When I was a young, when I was a medical student, I was petrified that everything would be discovered before I qualified, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't ever be able to do any research. Rubbish. All the common things you see every day: rheumatoid arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis, uh, that dreadful scoliosis that young, pretty young girls get to curvature of the spine. All these things, complete mystery. So. 
the younger people in the audience, don't worry, there's still plenty of work to do. Uh, this is a specimen here. And by the way, we've got one specimen of Paget. Uh, uh, the next one, I think it is. Uh, this Paget, you, you can see the specimen behind you there. Uh, as far as I know, these are, these are Paget's uh, originals, I believe. I don't pass for them in any case. He described other things. He described numerous things because he had this vast experience of going around the country seeing rare and obscure cases. Paget's disease of the nipple, reported in 1874. This is a, a this is a patient of mine uh, with Paget's disease of the nipple. It's a funny sort of excoriation of the nipple, which we now know is due to invasion of underlying malignant cells, which then spread out into the breast itself. Uh, he actually never put it under the microscope, but he got his house surgeon, a chap called Henry Butlin, a very became a very distinguished surgeon uh, at Bart, who did the who actually worked out the microscopic appearance of the bone. He described Paget's disease of the penis. It isn't called that anymore because some wretched Frenchman, worse than that, dermatologist, dermat <laughs> President, can I speak freely here? <laughs> A skin doctor. Hmm? It's now called the erythroplasia of Querat. I refuse to call it that. Um, Paget's recurrent fibroids, so a, a slowly growing malignant tumour. Paget's phlebitis of the upper extremity. This is patients who suddenly clot off the great veins in their arm. Uh, and interestingly enough, just last year, you see, I came across this paper in the British Journal of Surgery, long-term clinical function for the following treatment for Paget's Schroeter syndrome, thrombosis of the, uh, of the great veins in the arm. Uh, so there's the great man. Uh, and uh, a great teacher, a great clinician, uh, a kind, gentle person uh, that we remember today. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much indeed. You have time for some questions. Oh, please. Um, and I'd uh, ask you to speak clearly if you would, but I'm sure uh, there's a great many questions spanning Paget's uh, long and distinguished career. Should we put the lights on? Yes. Wake everybody up. Someone like to start me off and then I'll go and put the lights on. Please. No, absolutely not. I would, I would think that he did. I, I can't tell you this. Uh, I would think that he did a minimal amount of surgery. And uh, if you read his uh, case notes and case reports, hmm, and I've done some, uh, you don't come across that. You know, I then took the saw and took his leg off. Uh, I think he left that to the others. He was a great second opinion. Uh, so, as I say, surgery wasn't his forte. And as I say, he started life when anesthesia was just becoming available and he retired two or three years after antiseptic surgery came in. So major surgery, except in a few scattered areas, was, was unusual. 
it's ah Hugh. As I say, was is the is the senior surgeon in the James Paget Hospital. Well, you see, he retired in 1871 from from active surgery. Still went on seeing patients and, and still went on teaching and still went on doing a good deal of administration. For example, as president of the College of Surgeons, um, but. Uh, uh, listed at his first operation in, in Glasgow in 1865, published the reports on the antiseptic treatment of wounds, uh, 1867, do you see? I'm sure Paget read the paper like everybody else did, but that was, that was three years before he retired. Takes three years of Bartsman to buy carbolic acid. <laughs> sorry, sorry, I've got to be careful because we've You can take my FRCS away. that. But I say mo mo most surgeons didn't wash their hands before they operated. It's interesting we're talking about surgery being a sideline. Um, here of course uh, in the Museum and Archives Department we know him best as a curator as you said you know the vast catalogues of the pathological series here and the whole clinical bit is just a sort of unimportant sideline to us as a phenomenal museum cataloger but I understand you might think he had other strings to his bow. More questions? Yes, ma'am. No, no, oh, heaven forbid. That would be a very good, that's a very good question. That, 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 that's something that's well worth researching. It's very easy, interesting that the French and the Germans hate each other. You, don't, you wouldn't think so with all the common market and European communities that hate each other. So many of the things that have got a French name uh, will have a German name and you don't use the two together, you see. Uh, so, uh, uh, so Troisier's node, secondary deposit in your neck, in France, is, is um, is um, Verkhoff's node in Germany, and so on and so forth. So I d that's a very good question. 
I think some, probably someone writes the paper subsequently say, I've just discovered this odd disease of bone. I've looked it up in the literature, and uh, Paget gave a very good description of this, so I'm going to call it Paget's disease of bone. It's usually not a relative, but it's a good question. In his era, what were the main factors that made the surgeon be selected as surgeon to the Royal Household? Uh, that's an interesting question. I can't answer that. I don't, I don't, know, who, I don't know who does it today. There's the Queen's physician, who's a very important chap. Uh, in my day, the dean of my medical school, the great Sir Richard Bayliss, was, was the, uh, uh, the physician to the Queen. And I've no doubt that uh, he would say, you know, the, the, the best chiropodist in the country is so and so and so forth. We'd better make him the, you know, the royal chiropodist or whatever. I think it depends on that, as far as I know. Uh, if, um, of course, in the old days, the sergeant surgeon would be, do you know what the title meant? It meant you accompanied your uh, king into battle, the sergeant surgeon. The last time it happened w was when uh, the surgeon to George II, who was a very distinguished chap, accompanied uh, George into the Battle of Dettingen. It hasn't happened since 17-something. So you won't get the sergeant surgeon putting on his coat of armor <laughs> today, <laughs> you see. Uh, just how it is, uh, as with many things with the royal family, it's not widely um, d uh, mooted. However, if you look at the list of uh, sergeant surgeons, and the list is there, uh, they're all chaps where you say, well, God, he's a, you know, I'd be very happy to have him look after myself or any member of the family. I haven't come across a sergeant surgeon who who said, "Oh my God!" <laughs> yes, President. The selection of the uh, royal surgeons or the surgeons for the royal family was your take on the election of the sergeants. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You've done that paper. Um, my question actually is: um, Were they ever really good friends? Because presidents don't accuse people. Yes, that's a, a very good uh, question. Uh, in fact, from the, the small amount of reading I've done, the answer was, uh, sadly, no. The reason being, he was a damn nice chap. He was, a, he was such a very, he was a kind, gentle man. And I would, th <laughs> no. uh, I, and, uh, from the reading I've done, it would often be that at a committee, instead of saying, well, look, chaps, I don't care what you say, this is what we're going to do, uh, he was always very anxious to get to some sort of compromise agreement. As you know, as a surgeon, that's often a bad thing to do. You, see. you can't take off a quarter of a leg instead of a half. Question at the front. Oh yes, he, he, he was certainly an FRS. In fact, he, 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 he um, uh, presided over international medical meetings. You'll, you'll see a souvenir of that at the, one of the papers at the back where there's a thing, 
thanking him for his contribution uh, proposed by the great Charcot in France. So yes, he yes he uh, he, he was wi widely respected, fellow of the Royal Society and so on. I think uh, there were very few things that he wasn't something. He was he he was uh, he had a prom He was Chancellor of the University of London and so on and so forth. So he did his fourth stint. In fact, it didn't seem to me that he had much fun. Uh, he, he worked. I mean, he worked all day. He, he stayed up late at night. He kept Sunday. He was a very religious chap. Hmm? Uh, you can imagine with so many uh, priests in the family. Um, several of his sons got obtained eminent position in the church. Uh, so he, he, he did his full stint. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, only one of his children uh, went into medicine. Uh, and qualified as a surgeon, uh, but in fact didn't practice as a surgeon and went in for medical writing. In fact, wrote, wrote uh, Stephen Paget wrote a superb uh, biography of his father, helped by his father. Yes, uh, they're still alive and flourishing today. As I say, uh, his, uh, it'll be his, I forget, I forget which generation now. Great-grandson, mm -hmm. Great Sir Julian, is the last holder of the title because, as I said, hereditary titles are going to disappear. And he's got family, so the family's flourishing, glad to say. Thank well. you very much. Oh, can I just say, do have a look at the bits and pieces that we put out at the back. They're very interesting. And there's a very fine Paget's femur for you to look at. Inception. I'd like to hear that, yes, the oath. Is there a final question? Not my fault. <laughs> uh, do you, but you're quite right, of course, that when, uh, when uh, anaesthesia came in in 1846, um, with, that was ether, chloroform came in the following year, uh, J.Y. Simpson in, uh, in, in Edinburgh. Um, and uh, probably surgical mortality went up because people were doing bigger and better surgery in non-antiseptic conditions, the patients were dying of infection. So as I say, there was a period of time when, uh, as I say, a good observation, it was a shame that carbolic wasn't discovered before, before chloroform. Well, as Professor Ellis mentioned, please do have a look at the uh, manuscript material and the uh, bone uh, we brought out for you today. Please do complete your questionnaires and please join me in thanking our speech to text colleagues for lending yes. us uh, accessibility and thanking uh, my colleagues from the archives and the learning team for arranging this but finally and most importantly for thanking Professor Ellis for a wonderful talk. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs>
about the quality, really, as well as the quantity. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs>